And again, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Psalms, to the very first chapter, Psalm 1. Again, welcome to our guest. We're always glad to have guests. It's a great, great blessing to this congregation that we seldom go a week without guests. Many repeat and other first times, and we're glad that you're all here. I am preaching through the book of John right now. However, for the past few weeks, we've looked at some passages that pertain to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and for obvious reasons, because people have been thinking about the Christmas season. And so we've looked at those passages and reflected upon our, our Lord's condescension to us, coming and taking on flesh, which had he not done that, we would have no hope. As it's been my practice in the years that I've been here, I've, uh, I've, I've picked up for a couple of weeks, around the first of the year, some passages that would encourage us in the new year as we reflect upon the past and look to the future. And so I thought it'd be good to do that once again this year before we resume in chapter 16 of John with our study there. The Psalms are full of wonderful things. Many have uh, commented on this. Calvin did. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist, uh, 19th century, London pastor, uh, speculated a bit when he said that the Psalms are at the heart of the Bible for they come from the heart of God and they speak to the heart of men. And uh, if you have a Bible that's not cluttered with a whole bunch of stuff at the front and stuff at the back, and you can understand why he said that there are, the Psalms are at the heart of the Bible. Because if you grew up like I did doing Bible drills, and you had a Bible drill Bible that was free from all that extraneous stuff and just had the Word of God in it, you know that if you just open the Bible right at the middle, it's the Psalms. Now, in mine, with all that clutter is Jeremiah. So I have to turn back a bit to the Psalms. Calvin rightly said after his exhaustive study of the Psalms that every doctrine necessary for man's good is contained in the Psalms. And he's right. We saw that as I preached through the book of Psalms a few years ago. And it begins with this wonderful introduction. It's, uh, it's much like a number of the books of the Bible. Those first, that first chapter or the first verses is often um, a, a nice, helpful overview of what's coming. And Psalm 1 is one of those passages. So let's read it together. God's inerrant, infallible word, our only rule of life, and doctrine. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water 
that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for speaking to us with authority. Thank you for speaking to us with clarity. Thank you for speaking to us sufficiently. Father, thank you for giving us your perfect word. We ask now that you would speak to our hearts, each of us, that we might not leave this place as we came, but that we might leave trusting you, believing Jesus, having heard the Spirit's call upon our heart, and following. To that end, we ask for faith, that we might not sin but that we might follow you all the days of our lives and love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the Bible often calls us to remember. Now, covenant folks have heard me say that before. It calls us to remember. We're told in the Bible often, his people are told often, remember. In the book of Psalms, that's a, That's a recurring theme. God reminds his people to remember all of his wonderful deeds, all of his majestic works. Remember his person, who he is, in contrast to the gods of the nations. And so here at the beginning of a new year, remembering is good medicine. We don't live in the past, but we do live upon the past. Everyone in here can reflect, no matter what age, can reflect already upon people in their past that have been influential. I'm sure, knowing some of you children pretty well, that you can think of your parents and the godly influence they've been on you and how they've taught you to read and, and how they've taught you particularly to read your Bibles. They've taught you to pray and they've prayed with you. You may think of Sunday school teachers or your catechism teachers that have instilled in you a great love for God's word and indeed instilled God's word in you. And we can go beyond our parents and our godly Sunday school teachers and catechism teachers and we think of teachers in our in our educational life and how they've helped us and influenced us to learn and to strive for greater scholarship so that we can know the things we need to know that makes our lives better for today and for the future. We remember all these things so that we can move forward, so that we can move forward 
with greater distinction. Not for our recognition, per se, but for his, for God's glory. I heard a sad thing this past week on the radio from a local talk show host that I like in a lot of ways. But he said this, none of us know why we're here. And then I won't even go on with what he said. What he said was okay, but that starting point, none of us know why we're here, why we've been put here. Well, even the children of covenant would know that's bad theology. What's the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We know why we're put here. We're put here to glorify God, to worship him and to serve him with all of our heart and mind and soul. And so all these things that we remember, all these things that are in our past, even some of the bad things in our, in our past, serve to make us who we are. And so we react, we reject those bad things and, and we accept the good things and we move forward and we're meant to move forward with greater distinction. The Christian life is discernible because it's a distinguishable life. It's distinguishable from others. That's what one of the points of this passage is about. Do you notice that? We're not to do, we're not to do, we're not to be. So there's the negative aspects of distinguishing us. The thing I want us to see here is that this passage really defines who we are as Christians. It establishes the character traits of Christians. We not only know who we are, but we know what we're supposed to do from this passage. C.S. Lewis this is kind of hard. You know, I, I stopped and laughed at this as I was thinking through this just this past week. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, written back at the, the middle of the last century, way back in the 20th century. I realize some of you were not alive. I was not alive when Lewis wrote Mere Christianity. I'm not that old. But... One of the things he laments in the introduction to mere Christianity, and if you've read it in the past, you may remember this. If you've read it recently, you certainly remember this, is Christianity. The word Christian has lost its real meaning. And he uses examples of other words that have lost their meaning, like gentleman. By the way, if you haven't read that book lately, you ought to, and Start with the introduction. Always read introductions to books. Every good teacher tells you that. If you didn't listen, shame on you. Start listening. You wonder sometimes why you're in a book and you get lost because you didn't read the introduction. In the introduction, he says that, you know, gentlemen, when it word was first used, had this meaning. Now we use it this way. And so he says the same has happened to the word Christian. And I would say the same problem exists today. 
even in churches. People can denominate themselves as Christians and not be. You ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they go on to start telling you, and you're like, that's got nothing to do with it. Well, I live a good life. I try to do good to others. Okay, fine. You're a humanitarian. You're not a Christian. Christians should be good humanitarians, but humanitarians may not be Christians. Now, this passage is about genuine believers. And the psalmist begins by setting a contrast between the man who is blessed and the man who isn't. The man who knows God's covenant faithfulness and the man who doesn't. So let's look at it briefly this morning. The reason I want us to look at this one, the reason this one is good is because it sets us on a good path for the day. It sets us on a good path for the, the month ahead. It sets us on a good path for the year ahead. It sets us on a good path for life in general. So the first point is this, the Christian is defined by the psalmist in those first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So he does a couple of things there. You notice in the beginning he sets it in the negative. The blessed man is not found in these places, but the blessed man is this. So let's look at the negatives first. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. But before we even get to that, we have to deal with that, that first word in the English text, blessed. Blessed is the man. That's covenant language. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you go to the book of Leviticus as well, you'll find parallel passages there where the Lord goes through in extensive detail about the blessings that he gives to his people who are bound up in his covenant that he has established with them. And then he contrasts the blessings to the curses for those who do not live according to his covenant. So when we see the word blessed, we're not talking as sometimes you hear in popular Christian ease about happiness This passage is not about people being happy, giddy, frivolous. It's about people receiving from the Lord. That's what blessings are. Blessings are about God and what God does. It's not about how we feel. It's not about how we react to a football game. It's not how we react to a a wonderful food that we may eat. It's about what God does for people. It's what God gives his people. This is not happy is the man. It's 
blessed. It's the man who's been receiving from God. And the man receives from God who doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers. Rather, he delights in the Lord. Again, you go back to Deuteronomy, to that wonderful passage, that detailed passage, and all those things that the the man who is blessed is the man who loves the Lord. The man who walks with the Lord. The man who sits, takes time to rest with the Lord. So the blessing. You know... We live in a time of man-centeredness. And that could be said of every generation prior. There's nothing unique about us. You know, anytime you start thinking, you know, you're special or you're unique, you just need to read a good history book. And you'll realize, I'm no different than... People who've lived all through the years. But when I say we're man-centered and that that's consistent with the ages that have gone before us, what I'm getting at is this, is that when you you live in a man-centered culture and a man-centered mindset, we tend to think everything begins with us, that we're the initiating factor. That we're the beginning point and the ending point. But when you start with blessed is the man, we're talking about God being the initiator, God being the starting point, God being the actor. We're the recipients. That's true all the way through the Bible, isn't it? How did Adam come to be on this this globe we call earth? God put him here. God made him. And then Adam sins. And how did Adam get out of that mess? God came to him in the cool of the day. He initiated it. And we can work our way right on through with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. In any, every successive Covenantal generation, God acting with his people, he's the initiator. He is the one who does, and he's the one who blesses his people. He's the one that, what does James say? James 1, 17. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. doesn't say, every good gift, I earned it. Every good gift, I thought of, and I went for it. No, every good gift came down from the Father of life. God's the initiator, and we're blessed because he initiates it. Whatever we have, folks, is from him. Whatever you got in the past year, it came from him. Whatever we're going to receive in the coming year, it's going to come from him. Man is blessed. But notice something else here. We're bought. The people of God are a bought people. We're not our own. 
but we're to live in his presence. Did you see that? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So we're not supposed to walk in the counsel of the wicked. God tells us what we're not supposed to do. So we're supposed to walk in the way of the righteous. In other words, we're supposed to be where God tells us to be. We're not supposed to be in the, among wicked. We're not to be among sinners. We're not to be around people who scoff, who, in other words, who, who blaspheme, who make fun of Christianity. Or maybe they don't make fun of Christianity. Maybe they don't think of Christianity in the least. But they're always taking shots at what we would consider to be moral absolutes. Christian virtues. We're not supposed to be around people like that. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, before you write that down, say, I'm going to write that down. Pastor really came up with a good one there. Paul should get credit for that. God gave him that one, okay? We're bought people. The Apostle Paul says it just outright. We have been bought with a price. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6.20 to, to add to that. We have been bought with a price, therefore glorify him. That's why we've been bought, is to glorify him. We've not been bought to live like the world. We've been bought to live different, to be different. We're bought people. We live in his presence. We're supposed to find our residence in his presence as well. Do you notice that? We're supposed to stand in the way of the righteous, not in the way of sinners. In other words, we're supposed to, we're supposed to plant ourselves. It goes on to say that. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, established. That's where our residence is. That's where people can come and find us. You're looking, for, you're looking for a Christian? Well, go where Christians hang out. You want to know where a Christian is? Christians are going to be where godly people are. Christians are going to be where godly things are being done. They're not going to be in other places. Our residents... is in his presence. We're supposed to stand there. We're planted there. We're established there. And we're supposed to find our rest with him too. Notice the world, the world's perfectly happy to sit down, stretch out, recline with scoffers. They're just comfortable there. The world's just absolutely comfortable around sinners. Now we're supposed to be around sinners so that we can, we can be salt and light, but we should never, ever be comfortable in the midst of sin. It should always be a tension. There's going to be a divine tension for Christians to be out in the world being salt and light. If we ever become comfortable being with sinners, enjoying their talk, enjoying their interest, enjoying 
their pleasures. Well, we need to repent. We need to repent of that. We rather should enjoy sitting with God in the house of God with God's people. He goes on then to put it in the positive in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Where are you going to find the law of the Lord? It's in his word. Where are you going to find the law of the Lord proclaimed and taught and applied? It's going to be in God's house with God's people. On his law he meditates day and night. And the psalmist is going to say much about meditating on the law all through the 150 psalms. That meditating, we, we don't understand meditating. I think sometimes we think about meditating as making funny sounds, holding your fingers in a certain way. But in the Old Testament, there's an interesting play on this in the prophets. It, it has more to do with like the young lion that is devouring its prey. It's not like a cat playing with a mouse. It's like a, a young lion taking that, that prey that, that the adult lion or the lioness has, has captured and, and, and taking it and stripping it and digging into it. That's what meditating in this sense means. We're supposed to spend time digging into God's word, getting down, if you will, to the bone, to the marrow, not just being pleased with the superficial. We're like trees planted by the stream. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I think I'll go out for a walk now. That's superficial. Taking time to ponder and consider and pray about it. So that brings me to the next thing, and that is Christian is a bought man, a Christian is a Bible man, a Bible woman, a Bible child. Our delights in the law of the Lord. And there the law of the Lord just speaks to the Bible in its entirety. Everything that God has spoken. It's not just talking about the Ten Commandments, it's not talking about the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's talking about God's word, what God has spoken, what comes from the very character of God, and that's the entirety of God's word. And so for the psalmist, it was everything that God had given up until this point. For us, it's the whole of the Bible. So here at the beginning of the year, it might be a nice time to make a resolution that would be a resolution, something like this. You know what? I'm going to spend more time in God's Word. I really am. I really am going to delight in the law of the Lord. And when we do, notice, and this is true biologically, it's true chronologically as well. You know, here we are spending time not with the wrong 
people in the wrong context, but we're, we're walking, that's where we live. We're standing, that's where we're established. We're sitting, that's where we rest. We're delighting in the law of the Lord. And when we do, what comes naturally next is we're like a tree planted by streams of water. Do you see the pro- pro- progress there? If you're not here, but you're here, and you're spending time in God's Word, praying in God's Word, meditating on God's Word, spending time with God's people, holy worship, the means of grace applied to our souls, we're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. We're not going to be like a tree out in the middle of dry, arid lands. We're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. Some of y'all are like... Carol and I and our family, we like to drive up to the mountains. It's always amazing to me to drive around Little River Road or any of the roads, any of the streams, any of the rivers, and you find those massive trees right there on the edge of the water source, and they're just growing and growing, and you're like, how do they even stand up? It looks like half of the root system is out here in the water. And they just grow. Those big tulips, those big sycamores. And we can't, you know, it would take three or four of us to put our arms stretched out around them. A tree planted by streams of water. And notice what that tree that's founded on God's word, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on the law of the Lord, planted where it's supposed to be planted. Notice what it does. It yields its fruit in its season. Some 30, some 60, some 100, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 13. We're all different. Our fruit's going to be different. It yields its fruit in its season. And notice, its leaf does not wither. Because its source is the proper source. And anytime you come to water in the Bible, it it drives you to think what? Well, ultimately to Christ, who's the living water. He's our source. We just finished in John, not long ago, John 15. He's the vine. He's the source. He's the one we have to be attached to. And when we're attached to him, when we're abiding in him, then we bear fruit. That's who we are. We're bountiful. We nourish our bodies And then we can go out and we can labor and we can play and we can be productive. We can be stable in our work and play because we ate the rich food of God's word. We can bear much fruit because we're established in the truth. Maybe we're sitting here this morning. You're saying, you know, I don't don't seem to bear much fruit. Maybe you're not spending much time in God's word. Maybe you're not spending much time here worshiping God at every opportunity and receiving the rich food of the means of grace, the word, prayer, sacraments. That needs repentance. And then those last verses, four through six, 
distinguish us even more. The wicked are not like this. The wicked are not the good stuff. They're not the good grain. They're not the grain that is there. Some of that grain is for consumption. It's for nourishment. It's for sustenance. Some of that grain is for planting and bearing more fruit, right? But the wicked are not like that. The wicked are like the chaff. They're like that outside stuff that's just done away with. It's just taken off. It's blown out into the wind. It's gone. It's worthless. The wicked are not fruitful. Their leaves wither and the wind comes and blows them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You say, but wait a minute, I thought the wicked would be judged. Well, that's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying they won't be able to stand in the judgment. Those of us who are in Christ will stand in the judgment. And what will we hear? Not, depart from me, for I never knew you, but well done, good and faithful servants. That's the difference, and we see it right here. The wicked are like the chaff, driven away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That great day of judgment, John Gerardo in his great sermon, The Last Judgment, paints this horrific picture. He first paints the picture of the sheep, the lambs, those who are in Christ, and they're welcomed in, and they come in. Great jubilation. He says, I wish this were the end of it. That's not the end of the story over here. Or the goats. And they go through with much weeping and gnashing, and they enter a place where there is no hope. They can't stand. They're not in the congregation of the righteous. They don't have the blessings of the righteous. They're not the blessed is the man. They're the cursed is the man. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, we're not going to fool God. No one's going to fool God. He knows our hearts. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but... The way of the wicked will perish. Our fruitful lives will have eternal consequences. Unlike the wicked who perish, our fruitful lives will be recognized by God. Tonight, this will probably come back up tonight in the Sermon on Perseverance. From 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following, when Pastor Morris preaches. Part of our persevering is to produce this kind of righteous living, this kind of fruit. But at the end of the day, though we're persevering, though we're enduring to the end, though we're working out our salvation... It's the Lord who's at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. The wicked don't have the Lord at work in them. But the righteous do. Because they're blessed. He's initiated it. He's provided 
he's done. It's true, no two Christians will live identical lives. But every Christian will be like this blessed man and not like the wicked. Let me say it again. Don't compare yourself to one another. Comparative analysis is not a good way to do Christian theology. No two Christians, God's not called any of us to do the exact same things and to bear exactly the same fruit. If that were the case, then there'd only be one fruit. And God, even in the natural world, gave us a plethora of fruits. So he's designed his church like a body to do its thing to produce everything necessary. So don't expect everyone to look the same. But we should expect everyone to look like this chapter. Blessed and therefore walking with Christ. Planted in Christ. Delighting in Christ and his truth. Delighting in God's people. That's the expectation. So let's turn from the false ideas of the world, even the competing religious world, and let's take his standard. Let's turn to the one who owns us and blesses us and trust him for everything. And who is that? Well, again, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ is the one who bought us with his own blood. So let's turn to Christ over and over and over and over again. Every day. That's where we need to go. Every day is to Christ. Call out to the Father. Ask for more faith to trust Christ better. Call out to the Spirit that the Spirit would enable us better to trust Christ. Let's love Christ more this coming year than we did this past year. And if we do that, this time next year, this building won't hold us all. And there'll be people sitting here with us who have trusted Christ because we told them and because the Holy Spirit took our meager little works and applied it to their hearts. Wouldn't that be exciting? I bet the halls would move to the front row in order to make that happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful morning. And now as we continue, not only with the word read and preached, but the word in visible form, the only picture of Jesus that you've authorized, the only one that doesn't violate the second commandment, this table, the bread and the cup. As we come to the table, may Jesus be all we see. We pray this in his name. Amen.